welcome to any guests who may be here, and I want to thank the man who gave the sermonette, Mr. Savone, very thoughtful and helpful, I think, and certainly tells us we ought to put our trust in God and not try to second-guess God, and I think that was very well impressed on our minds through the sermonette. Appreciated the special music of the talents our young people have. And, brethren, as we read the world news, and I hope all of you read it or at least watch it on television, you don't get the details on television, frankly. You don't get it near as much as if you would read it. So some of you may try to get a newspaper or at least over the Internet follow it so you get what's really going on because an awful lot is going on. And I can only cover some of the highlights right now. But this world really is coming apart. We recently got a... Uh, clipping here a series of comments from this uh, Mike Adams of the Healthy Ranger, natural news editor of a natural newspaper that's apparently very respected and out a number of our people take it. And it talks about how we're facing unprecedented outbreaks of Ebola and Chikungunya and even the plague all over. Ebola outbreak out of control of 600 dead and counting. Now the latest radio report says it's over 700 dead. And we know they're moving, they're bringing this man, and he just arrived this morning, I guess, from Liberia, who has this disease right down here a couple hundred miles south in Atlanta. So it's getting closer and closer. They're bringing this man here. If something goes wrong, it can spread all over. It's coming right into America, and it's one of the most deadly plagues of modern times. Deadly airborne plague strikes four in Denver, Colorado, and then this chicken gunya, I don't know how to pronounce that, explodes across 35 states. And they're getting a lot of different disease epidemics that are spreading. And, of course, God describes how that was going to happen. Drug-resistant infections explode 500% across U.S. hospitals. And it shows how that is happening. Then they have another clipping from another paper showing the MERS mutates into airborne pathogen. And you know what a horrible thing that is. And then other uh, talks in China about entire cities quarantined after the bubonic plague and insect plague breaches biblical proportions in Wisconsin. It's kind of funny to read about it, about these little insects all over the place, thing, all over the cars and everything, but yet it's unusual. So things like that are speeding up. And most of you know that in the war situation, Wars across the world are breaking out, perhaps more than at any time in history as far as the number of wars. We have a terrible war going on right now as we speak in Iraq. And this ISIS people coming down, these guerrillas are, are killing people, torturing people, literally crucifying people, killing all the Christians who won't pay a special fine or repent and join their form of Islam. And in Iran, things are getting very tight. The people are getting upset. In Syria, there's a war going on, and over 100,000 have been killed. In Tripoli, the Benghazi uh, rebels have taken over the, this, this, uh, this Benghazi uh, second city, which, of course, our ambassador got killed. They murdered there some time back, and now those bad guys have controlled that city. And all over the world, we're having bloodshed. You read all over Africa, one nation after the other after the other is fighting. People are being kidnapped, raped, murdered all over the continent of Africa. And here in America, our leaders are in confusion. There's a very a sensitive, very thoughtful 
report this morning, editorial by Charles Krauthammer, one of the most respected editorialists in the world, showing how we seem to do the wrong thing almost every time. And he shows how one after the other, they seem to do the thing that turns most of the world against us. We're favoring our enemies. We seem to be turning on our own allies. And he's wondering, why? How can this be? But that's what's happening in the world. Our leadership does not know what to do. So what's going on? Well, we know what God says. This world has turned away from God. And God is not letting us have the blessings that we would have if we had right leadership, if we had Christian leadership. This world cries out. Really, brethren, it is more than any time in history, as far as I know, in modern history, the world is crying out for righteous leadership. They don't all know it yet, but many of them are beginning to talk along those lines. They can't seem to get the right kind of leadership. And frankly, we need to think about that very much. So what should we be doing? If you turn with me to Psalm chapter 33, the 33rd Psalm, God Almighty tells us and gives us this challenge here in this Psalm. Verse 8, Psalm 33, verse 8. Let all the earth fear the eternal. If the entire world were in awe of the great God and really had profound respect for what God says in the Bible and were willing to do even part of it, the world would be a different place. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him, for He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The eternal brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. We have earlier Hillary Clinton up there with a bunch of advisors making wrong decisions one after the other. And now we've got John Kerry. And as Krauthammer explains, they just do almost crazy things, things that are almost the opposite of what our leaders in the past would have done. Just one mistake right after the other. The Council of the Nations, these politicians, these diplomats, cut off from God, almost like a cheerleading section if they come in with almost every form of sexual perversion known to man, they say, oh, that's great, that's great. But they don't know what to do leading the nation. They're bringing us right down into the pit. And they don't seem to get it because God has blinded them. God brings the counsel of the nations, their leaders, their diplomats to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the eternal stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. As Barack Obama said in a speech some time back, he says, whatever we once were, we are not now. And at least he was right on that. We are not now, partly because of our leadership. We are not now the nation we were even 30 or 50 years ago. Nothing like this was happening when I was growing up. Nothing. We had a sense of unity, a sense of patriotism, and a lot of the sexual perversions practiced today, if they started to happen in most of our towns, they would run out of the city. They'd literally run them right out of town. But now we think that's great. So blessed is the nation whose God is the eternal and the people whom He's chosen as His inheritance. Skip on down to verse 20. Our soul waits for the eternal. He is our help and our shield, for our heart shall rejoice in Him. Why? Because we have trusted in His holy name. And brethren, if you tie that in with Mr. De Simone's fine sermonette, you see how he didn't trust in God. 
He didn't trust at that point in the past, of course, and the advice he was getting. He didn't trust in counsel, turned away from what God normally said to do, and everything went wrong. And that's what's happening to the United States as a whole. We're going to be blessed. He will be our help and our shield because we have trusted in His holy name. So we've got to trust in God. We've got to trust in this book. We've got to trust in everything God stands for. And then everything will start getting better if we do that in our individual lives and our nation as a whole. But most people don't even begin to understand that. But the great God, El Shaddai, God Almighty, wants real righteous leaders to come on the scene. And He is now preparing those leaders. How? Right here, right here in the true church of God and at this summer camp we're having as well. He's preparing those leaders in his own true church. Turn back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, brethren. And some of this is familiar, but I just want to give you a thorough overview of this today. In Genesis chapter 1, he describes how God created the heavens and the earth and created all the animals and creatures. And then verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Man is made like God. The animals only have instinct. You know that. They just automatically do things and they'll go to the bathroom, as we say, where there is no bathroom. They're not in any shame. They just do what comes naturally. They have no guidance from God in the sense that God has put an instinct in them. We read about these birds that fly all the way from way up north in Alaska all the way down to the South Pole almost. Why? Every year they do that. They've got an internal guidance system that helps them to do it. It's instinct. God has put instinct. The scientists will tell us, oh, that just developed over thousands of years. What? The internal guidance system and all that to get these birds thousands of miles away to where the weather's better way down there? That's crazy. But the world does not think about that. But God did that. He put all these kind of instincts in animals. But man does not have that kind of instinct. We have to learn everything sometimes by suffering if we're not willing to learn it first from God's Word. But God has given man a mind. And only man has creative imagination like God. Animals have no creative imagination in the way we do. We're the ones that create the radio and later the television. We're the ones that create the computer. We're the ones that put rockets into outer space. We're the ones that do this and that and so on. That animals have never done it and never will do it. I don't care how long their evolution goes on. Only man made in the image of God has that kind of capacity and only man has free moral agency. The animals don't do anything bad because they just follow instinct. We are told what to do and God tests us as to whether we will do that. We have free moral agency. We can choose to do the right and resist the wrong or we can choose to go along with our own human nature and do the wrong and resist the right. We have that capacity. We're made in God's image. God said, let us more than one, God and the Word God and the Logos, the second person in the God family, said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion. And later it says, God blessed them and said, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. In verse 28, Have dominion over the fish of the sea and everything that is. 
man was given dominion, which means rule. From the very beginning, we have the capacity to organize, to make decisions, to rule. And God wants us to do that. He put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He told them to dress it and to keep it. Keep it the right way. Think about the ecology. Think about what makes the garden continue. Think about what makes it beautiful. And that kind of thing. We have dominion over all the creation. We can have dominion over others in this world as God lives us an opportunity in various offices. And later we're going to have dominion even over the angels, the angelic hosts, and over the whole world, and later the entire universe. We have been given dominion by God Himself. We're created to exercise dominion, to exercise government. That's another word for it. We're made by God for that very purpose. We're supposed to be learning how to do that and how to do that the right way. In Exodus chapter 18, we find the first organized way of governing that God reveals. And many scholars, even worldly scholars, some who've been management experts like Peter Drucker, who wrote some of the most famous books on management, refers right back to this chapter. Exodus chapter 18 describes how Moses was guided by God through his father-in-law. And on a day, Moses sat to judge the people. Remember that? Exodus 18, verse 13. All the people kept standing before Moses in great big lines to try to make right decisions. And he was trying to decide every dispute of every family with every brother family or every person with every other person in the whole nation. Didn't make sense. He'd wear himself out on all the people, but God guided his father-in-law to come. And so he says, verse 8, 16, When they have a difficulty, they come to me, Moses said, and I judge between one and another, and I make them known the statutes of God and his law. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, and God indicates clearly by the example that he guided this, and he backed this up because Moses did that and was blessed. Later we find David did that, Solomon did that, Jehoshaphat did that. The righteous leaders of Judah followed this same pattern. So Moses said, the thing you're doing is not good. You'll wear yourselves and the people out. Listen, I'll give you counsel. You shall teach them the statutes and laws. Go ahead and teach the right way and show them the way in which they must walk. But verse 21, moreover, you shall select, not vote for, not politic, not have people getting up and saying, vote for me. Moses, you get all the facts. You make the right decisions. You select from the people able men, capable men, such as fear God. That was the other qualification. Capable men and men who had the awe of God, the profound respect for what the God of creation tells us to do. Men of truth. People who do not lie and water things down and twist things around. Hating covetousness. Not trying to get ahead or get money from others. And place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And we can see by the way ancient Israel carried it out, it wasn't ten people, it was ten families. It wasn't a thousand people, it was a thousand families. So a ruler over a thousand might be literally be a ruler over five thousand or nine thousand because the family might be five or nine people or whatever, as you see what I mean. So God had this pattern of government from the beginning and let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great manner, they didn't have a Supreme Court. Moses with his advisors were the Supreme Court. 
but every great matter they will bring to you, and you will bear, but they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing and God commands you, which God obviously did by the example, then you will be able to endure, and all the people go to their place in peace. They won't be standing in long lines waiting for the courts of this world to finally get something done, which is another way our, our, our system is failing. They have court cases. Every now and then you find that someone is going to be executed. I should have brought some of those, but recently they executed a man for murder, as a terrible murder, that he committed when? Back in 1989. I remember because it's 15 years. 15 years goes by. And finally we get a little bit of justice. But what happened all that time? Well, your tax dollars were paying him to be kept in some isolation ward in a, in a place and all that. While these men sat on their hands and didn't know what to do and voted and politicked and the different uh, court, uh, the different lawyers argued and got stays and changes around and one thing and the other. The whole system is going to change. Of course, you have to have God involved to be sure to be done the right way. I understand that. But that's the way it's going to be in tomorrow's world. There won't be this constant waiting and waiting and waiting, waiting on hospitals who can't heal people to try to get them to heal people, which they can't, waiting on uh, uh, judges to make decisions which they don't know how to do and often make the wrong decision and a decision that is way, way late. And the delays and delays that cost tens of thousands or sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars to keep these men waiting till justice may or may not be done after this whole appeal process in our judicial system. So God gave that kind of structure of how to carry out these decisions and how to run, how to lead. And then you find in Exodus, uh, I'm sorry, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, and remember, brethren, all this is the mind of God. It's coming right out of the Bible. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, if you want to turn there in verse 13, you find here, that God is instructing Moses again, choose wise and understanding uh, men who are wise and understanding, men among your own tribes, and I will make them heads over you. And you answered the thing which you told us to do is good. So I took the heads of your tribes and made them rulers, a thousands, hundreds, tens. Then I commanded you, your judges, verse 16, verse 16, I commanded your judges at that time, saying, here are the cases between your brethren and judge righteously. If we're going to be the leaders in tomorrow's world, we sincerely, brethren, need to be careful. We need to learn to do it now in our own lives. We need to make righteous judgments, righteous decisions, correct decisions. We need to get all the facts. We need to weigh those facts in light of God's instruction, not just trying to go ahead and do our own thing, but in light of God's instruction. We need to be strictly fair. You shall judge righteously between a man and his brother or the stranger who is with you. You shall not show partiality in judgment. Don't favor the rich or favor the poor either, God says. Be fair to everyone. Carry out the law faithfully. So have no partiality. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence. See some big shot or noble, or aristocrat, or general of the army. That makes no difference. If you're the leader, if you're the judge of God, you be fair. For the judgment is the eternal's. So you need to think about it that way. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is of God. 
the case that is too hard for you, bring it to me. So then Moses had to make the final decisions with the help, and God certainly showed he got advice, and God's commands throughout the book of Proverbs is to get multitude of counsel. And we're sure that Moses did do that because he was honored by God as one of the greatest leaders of all time. Turn now back to Second Chronicles, if you would. Second Chronicles. And I'm going to turn here. If I can find my marking here. Second Chronicles, chapter 19. Second Chronicles 19, verse 3. He's talking to Jehoshaphat, a righteous king, who made some mistakes. But he said in verse 3, Nevertheless, good things are found in you, in that you removed the wooden images from the land and have prepared your heart to seek God. Jehoshaphat had prepared his heart. He had started to study the part of the Bible they did have, meditate on it. He was obviously meditating, praying, and seeking God. And that's what we've got to do, brethren, if we're going to be made kings and priests. We've sincerely, God, how would you have me make decisions? And try to do that in every part of your life. What would you have me do? And try to think through what Christ would do. What would Abraham do? Sometimes if I'm faced with a kind of a business decision, I think, first of all, or try to, what would Christ do? But in a practical, up-to-date, modern way of just carrying it out, I think, what would Mr. Armstrong do? Or what would some righteous leader today do? And I saw what he did do and how it turned out and learned from that. So prepare your heart to do things God's way. And then Jehoshaphat dwelt in Jerusalem, verse 4, and went out to the people. And then he set judges, verse 5, in the land. This righteous judge of Judah throughout the fortified cities of Judah, city by city, and said, verse 6, to the judges, Take heed what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the eternal. You judge for the ever-living God. You are responsible to Him. Be careful how you judge for who is with you in the judgment. So you judge for the eternal who is with you in the judgment. How much more will God be with His faithful ministers today if they have been teaching God's truth and doing God's work and are faithful? If He was righteous, guide, guiding a righteous judge of Judah who made some pretty bad mistakes and nevertheless He guided it overall, how much more would He be with us today in the church and the work and how much more will He be with us in tomorrow's world and when we're fully in God's kingdom, fully in His family, born of God, having the very nature of God. Wow, that's going to change the world. The whole world will be at peace and everything will be changed and people will sincerely find out what God's way is like and how good it is when it is actually carried out according to God's Word. So God was to be with them in the judgment. Now therefore, fear that the fear of the eternal be upon you. Take care and do it. For there is no iniquity with the eternal our God no iniquity, no dirty tricks, no lying, no deal-making, no partiality, nor taking bribes, no payoff. Almost every day you read about some senator or governor or somebody getting payoff, and therefore they get in trouble, and some of them get in jail, some of them get off the hook. They're always able to buy somebody with money. God says, don't do that. Do it righteously and do it with impartiality. Don't favor your buddies. 
Don't favor your friends. Go right down the line and do what God says. And have the fear of God. And as, you know, the sermonette pointed out, you don't want to try to say, I know better. Just go ahead and do things your own way. Have the fear of God. The awe of God. I'd better do it God's way or everything is going to go wrong. Which it always does in the end. I found that too when I've been self-willed or made mistakes that were not according to God's Word. So you've got to learn that lesson. Now turn to Revelation chapter 2 if you would. Very familiar, I know, but we want to cover this whole spectrum here of Scriptures about this topic today. Not every Scripture, but from one point of view. Revelation chapter 2, verse 26. This is us, brethren, in the New Testament church. Christ is saying this to us. Christ is speaking. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. Christ, I will give him power over the nations. We're going to rule the nations. Righteous government is our, our goal. We are being trained for that right now. We're being trained to replace these, frankly, these diplomats and politicians who are all mixed up and bringing chaos to this world. The leaders in, in of course, Tripoli, the leaders in, in, in uh, uh, Syria, the leaders in all these other nations are bringing suffering and war and chaos. They don't know what to do, and our leaders don't either. So if we overcome... Who do we overcome? We overcome our human nature, our vanity, selfishness, our lust and greed. We overcome our self-will. We overcome all of this. And we overcome the world and its poles, its temptations. And then we've got to overcome our special enemy, our adversary, Satan the devil. The very word Satan means adversary. We've got to overcome him because he will try to get at us and upset us and pit us against God pit us against God's government and get us going a wrong way. We've got to overcome Him. So He overcomes. To Him I will give power. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the potter's vessel shall be broken to pieces, as I also, Christ is speaking, He says, as I also receive from my Father. I'm also going to be ruling with a rod of iron. But this is talking to us. The one who overcomes will be ruling with a rod of iron. We will have to be firm. We'll have to be fair, but we'll have to be firm. I'll tell you, when you're dealing with these Saddam Husseins and these terrible dictators and the dictators of the past like Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin and Benito Mussolini, how do you talk nice to them? They're not interested in nice talk. They're interested in one thing. Who has power? As the Pope famous, I mean, as, as, as Stalin Joseph Stalin, the dictator of Russia, famously remarked when he heard about the Pope being important. He smirked. He said, how many divisions does the Pope have? He meant army divisions. Well, the Pope didn't have any army divisions, but he had tremendous influence. He had power in that way. But what these dictators respect most of all is power. They respect overwhelming force. And we will have that at that time. We will be able to bring fire down from heaven We'll be able to shut their mouths. We'll be able to shut up. And they will we'll try to talk and they can't. We will literally be able to shut their mouths right on the spot. They will recognize there's a power there they have never had to deal with before. And that will bring respect when they see that power. That's about the only thing that will bring respect at first until they learn God's ways. 
chapter 5, Revelation 5, it talks in verse 8 about the song of the saints and the prayer of the saints. What is the prayer of the saints? They sang a new song saying, it's a song and a prayer, this is the prayer of the saints, inspired by God, obviously, the saints of God. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, speaking of Christ, and have redeemed us to God by your blood. And the precious blood of Jesus Christ is very important. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, every human being can come to Christ, can come to God through Jesus Christ and His shed blood and be totally forgiven if He really repents and have made us. God didn't say, I might make you. He says, I have made you. It's kind of interesting. Back in Romans 4, 17, God calls those things which be not as though they were. It's as though it's already done. He says, I have made you. In advance, God has made you, brethren, over here, and you, brethren, over here. He's already made you kings and priests in His overall plan, expecting that all of those who would follow then, if you're willing to follow on with the calling, you're already made. The plan is already there. He's already intended you to do what? To rule over five cities or ten cities or a whole nation a few years from now and maybe later a whole planet or a whole galaxy in the family of God. I have made you kings and priests. That's your goal. That's your calling. You're not called just to sit up in heaven playing a harp and do nothing. You're called to rule. You've got to think about that. I am called to be a ruler. I'm called to exercise government. I've got to learn the right government. I've got to learn to believe in that government, have trust in God to guide it the right way. And I've got to have faith in God and walk with God to be in that government, to be in the kingdom or the government of God. As Mr. Armstrong used to say, kingdom means government. And that's what we're teaching. That's what Christ's teaching. Christ came preaching the kingdom of God. Repent. And believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. And it is. It's coming very, very soon on us. So God has made us kings and priests. And we shall reign where? Up in heaven? No, we shall reign on the earth. So again, that's our calling. We're familiar with that, but let's not take it for granted. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you turn there now, brethren. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I'm going to begin in the very first verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The Apostle Paul, of course, was helping these Corinthians understand their purpose and understand how they ought to be living and how they ought to be carrying out God's government even in the church because that is a very important thing. He said, Dare any of you having a matter against another? How dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? We're not used to that. I know that, brethren, but this is real. God means that. You're to come to the church expecting to get righteous judgment. You're to come to the church expecting that God will guide those in authority to work problems out between brethren in that way, even if it were a legal issue. Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? God has called us. That's what we're called to do. That's one reason, the two big reasons, as Mr. Armstrong explained, that God has chosen to call you now, or call me now, rather than later on in the millennium. First of all, we're called, of course, 
to be an example to the world. We're called to do the work. So we're supposed to do the work. We're called so we have that opportunity to do God's work now. But secondly, we're also called to be kings and priests. We're called to be those who are now in training, in training today through these sermons, through the whole church of God and the whole panorama of evangelists and pastors and elders and deacons and deaconesses and others in the organization of God's church. And a lot of you are helping in various ways. And you ought to just try to learn from that. Do it in an attitude of service. Do it in an attitude of kindness. Do it in an attitude of love. And do it the way God says to do it. Then he can give you a greater responsibility later in this life. Or if it's better, in tomorrow's world. Rather than just being a deacon, you may be over ten cities or any number of things. Some of our deacons now, or deaconesses now, and I mean this, may have a bigger job over ten or fifteen cities or a whole galaxy than some of the top people in the work today. And I mean that. I've told you how Mr. Dr. Hay and several of us were talking one time about Bill Humberger, who is one of the most faithful, kind deacons I've ever known, we did never recommend Bill Humberger to be an elder. Were we against him? No, we all loved him. But Bill was not cut out to be an elder. He only had his sixth grade education. He, he did not have proper grammar. Some of his teeth were missing. He'd grown up and in poor circumstances. He had a chicken farm, and he didn't know how to dress or how to act in that sense. But as a Christian, he knew how to act. He helped. He served others all the time. Was a wonderful deacon. And several of us begin to realize that some of the other leading ministers among us were very having worldly problems. And we said, and we meant it, Bill Homberger may have a higher position in God's kingdom than some of us evangelists. And I still believe that. In fact, I'm quite sure of it. <laughs> I'm quite sure that Bill Homberger, this deacon from the 1950s and early 60s, will have a higher position in the kingdom of God, and I'm sure he will be there than some of the men who were evangelists at that time. Understand that. That's the truth. You, if God rewards you according to what you do with what you have to do with. As it says in Luke 12, if you want to look up this scripture on it, God's way of judging, Luke 12, Luke 12, verse 48. Unto whom much is given, much will be required, and so on. And God will give each one according to his ability. So he explains that in that verse. And God judges us according to how we do with what we have to do with. And Bill Homberger did a lot. God has made you a king or priest. And God tells us now we are called to judge the world. Do you not know that the saints will judge the whole world? That's what we're called to do. And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters, just matters of upset between brethren? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? And as I've explained to you, the Greek words here are diacrino, anacrino, and various forms of that word, which doesn't always mean to condemn that Greek expression. As the commentaries look it up, it doesn't always mean to condemn. You shall judge. It sometimes means decide between, or it can as Moffat translates it. The Moffat translation, you decide between, you manage. That may be the best meaning in this particular verse. Don't you know that we are going to manage angels? I don't know that Christ is going to have our help or need our help to decide what happens to the angels, but we will manage angels. They are now our servants. We don't see them. 
But later then we will see them and we'll be able to direct them here and direct them there. Spirit beings who will be on our staff, so to speak, as we run a city or run a state or run a nation or whatever title it is at that time. We shall judge or manage angels. How much more things that pertain to this life and this time were to learn to judge, to make right decisions, to manage. If then you have judgments concerning things of this life, why? And the way it's worded, many translations have it, they do you appoint or implied, why do you appoint uh, those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? Why do you go down the, 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 the street and find some carnal judge who doesn't even believe in God and may be cheating on his wife or is an alcoholic, as many are, and ask him to decide? You trust him more than you trust the elders in the church because you say, well, we know Joe Blow or John Smith or whoever the elder is, and we know he has mistakes. Yes, you don't know the mistakes of Judge so-and-so down here and all the kickbacks he's getting and all the mistresses he may have and all the other rotten things. You don't know that, so you trust him. Don't do that. Learn to have faith, brethren. I mean this on a daily basis to trust Christ, to run his church, to run his government. That's what we've all got to do. You say, well, you're in charge, so that makes it easy for you. No. You could talk to Mr. I started to say Mr. McNair. He's dead. Carl McNair. But Burke McNair is still alive. He's in, this, he's in the United Church, but he'll tell you this. And I've asked him, and I asked even Mr. Luker when he was here visiting us a while back, still alive. They know that I was loyal to Mr. Armstrong even in hard times when it was not easy to be that way. They know that. And I did do that. And I was loyal to him when I was sent away. What was not necessarily a good idea, I just saluted in a sense and said, yes, sir, and I did it, and I meant it. I knew God would take care of it, and he did do that every single time. Every single time. He's never let me down. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He's in charge over all. One wicked man back during the crisis of the receivership caught me at one time because I knew his problem and knew what he was up to. It wasn't Ted Armstrong. It was someone else. And he virtually screamed at me. I've only had two men scream at me, never one of the Armstrongs. He virtually screamed. And he said, if you keep telling Mr. Armstrong, or not keep, but just tell Mr. Armstrong about my problems and what you think I'm up to, he said, I'll break you, I'll smash you, I'll destroy you. And he meant it. He tried to get me kicked out of the church over and over again. He himself got kicked out of the church. He fell into the pit that he himself dug, as the book of Proverbs tells us. He who digs the pit will fall into it. And that's what happened to this man. I've seen that happen again and again because God is there. Don't ever think God is not there. He is there. He's alive. Christ is the living head of the church. He will guide these things for good. And you've got to build confidence in that and know that. I say this to your shame, he says, that you'd set a carnal man over you, so that there is there not a wise man among you, not even one that will be able to judge between his brethren. But brethren goes to brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you 
that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather suffer wrong? Why do you not rather uh, let yourselves be defrauded? So, of course, he tells us it's better to even have wrong happen than to practice wrong government and go out to the world rather than have submitted to God's government. And he may allow something to be temporarily wrong, but if you put faith in him, he will straighten it out in the end. You have to have faith in that. I've seen that, brethren. I've lived through it. I can tell you specific names and stories five or seven times. I've seen it happen to me and to others. Christ is alive. Jesus Christ is sitting right now watching and hearing this sermon. He's alive. He's sitting at the right hand of God, and he's in charge of his church. He will work these things out for good. Now let's turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1. Christ has got to be very real to you and very real to all of us, and I hope that he will be. You've got to really try to make Christ real to you. Study this book. Feed on it. Come to know that God is real and Christ is real and see it in action in your life. Breaking into one of Paul's great, long, complicated sentences here, Ephesians 1, verse 19, is speaking about the greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the work of His power. Verse 20, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenlies, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name, in other words, every office, every authority that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his Christ's feet. So God put not some things, but all things under Christ's feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Christ is the head over the summer program He's the head over the youth programs throughout the whole year. He's the head over the finances. He's the head over church administration. He's the head over editorial. He's the head over mailing. Do we ever make any mistakes in those departments? Yes, we used to in worldwide. But Christ guided it where we learn from those mistakes. We grow. We usually do it better in succeeding years as each year goes by. And he causes it to work out where the work is still being done. He's in charge overall. He lets us learn lessons while we're doing his will, while we're doing his work. But he guides it. He's in charge. God put all things under him and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. We are Christ's collective body. Christ used to have two hands and two feet and two eyes and two ears. He doesn't have that today on earth. He uses our hands, our feet, our voices to preach His truth. The fullness of Him who fills all and all, because Christ is alive. So we want to really deeply understand that and appreciate it. Christ is alive. Now let's turn to chapter 4, if you would. Ephesians at this point, brethren. Chapter 4. Paul writes... I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness. We must not go around being cocky. We're here for a few days and then we're gone. Deeply realize that, even you young people. As I said, I used to feel sorry for the older people. Don't any of you feel sorry for me saying I may die. Some of you kids who are only 19 or 25 years old, you may die before I do. 
I had to realize that when my friend Richard David Armstrong was crushed to death at age 29, only 29 years old, and it suddenly hit me, you can die anybody at any time. So have a walk worthy of God with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He wants us to have unity. God wants a unity in His kingdom. He does want Satan the devil over here whisper, whisper, whisper and upsetting people and turning people aside. God hates division. He hates those who cause division. In some of the Proverbs, he gives whole Proverbs. I can't give you every scripture of the Bible on that today, of course, but many Proverbs show us that. So we're to try, endeavor to keep the unity, to keep the unity, not pagan unity, but the unity of God's Spirit that God's Spirit brings in the bond of peace. There is one body. God doesn't have different bodies teaching different things. There is one body, one spirit, one basic approach to God, one attitude, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one basic pattern of belief, just like, of course, we say the Catholic faith, and then the Buddhist faith is all faith in their form of God, but a totally different faith. But there has to be one basic approach to God in God's church. We can't judge Others in other branches of the church, but basically many of them have a similar thing. They may not be using it as well as we are, but we've got to let God judge that and not sit around judging each other. But there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. God is to be in us through His Spirit. Then he says down here in verse 11, speaking of Christ, now, he himself gave some apostles. Christ set the offices in the church. Some prophets, some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And as I've said, brethren, I've had people tell me 15 or 35 times, more like 35 or 50, well, you're an apostle. I've said, no, I'm not an apostle. I'm ordained by Mr. Armstrong as an evangelist. And if God wants to be an apostle then he would give a much greater work, a much more powerful work, and unusual miracles. And he hasn't done that. So I need to go by where God has put me and not try to appoint myself to some office like some others have done in these other groups. Some of them shoot right by me. Some of my, my former students are so great they can't stand it. All of a sudden it's kind of amusing to see how, how great they are. But anyway, we're not to do that. But God put those offices. On the other hand, we had better respect the office we do have and respect the offices Christ has put in the church. I know, I don't see Dr. O'Neill must be out preaching, but Mr. Ames and Dr. O'Neill, I think it was Mr. Ames who said to this leader of one of the other groups who was here a year or two ago, and they don't believe in the offices in God's church, one of the leaders of the other groups. And he said, well, George, his name is not George, he said, you're not even looked on as an evangelist. He said, we recognize your ordination but you're not even looked on as an evangelist in your own church, are you? And he kind of hung his head. He says, no. He just looked down for a while. They had no answer. He stayed in that church, but he knew they would not call him ever an evangelist, even though Mr. Armstrong had ordained him an evangelist, and he was doing that job. They don't respect it in that way. Then others guys come along and put themselves way up without any reason to do so. So either extreme is wrong. Why did Christ put those offices? 
What's the reason? For the equipping of the saints to strengthen us, to build us, to make us strong. For the work of the ministry, doing the work of God all over the world, preaching the gospel. For the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ. Till we all come, all of us in God's church, to the unity. God wants unity. Not people whispering and saying, well, let's go over here and let's go over that and we've got a better way. Oh, really? If they have a better way, why haven't they been off somewhere else doing their own work? Why did they let us teach them all these years and then they said to decide they have a better way? We've always had people whispering, 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 which God hates. But God says, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, a fully mature, as it can be translated, man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're to try to fully reflect Jesus Christ in every facet of our lives, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men. That's what's happened to people down through the years, brethren. We have things pop up every now and then, and it's kind of amusing to me in one sense, in another sense it's very sorrowful. Well, I sincerely tell you before God in Christ, way back in the 1950s and 60s, we had some of these same arguments come up that people have been coming up with in the last few years, even among us. They argue about how you count the Passover. How do you count Pentecost? How do you uh, do this and that? And all kinds of arguments they come up with about the sacred names, that pops up every few years. You can count on it. Well, we've got to speak Hebrew. We can't speak the modern language. Well, Paul spoke the modern language and others in the Bible, and we can prove that to anyone with an open mind. It's very clear. They didn't all try to speak Hebrew, but these people argue. They can't seem to get it. People are looking for some new thing. They don't seem to be willing to trust Christ. Then back then, we had the black power movement, and people were saying, well, there's a black Israel and there's a black Jesus. Well, there's not a black Jesus. Even the Jews themselves, the Jewish leaders, know that, of course, different historians, as Dr. Vanell pointed out a couple of weeks ago, they know there was a man named Jesus Christ because it got known all over the world. He was a Jew. He was not a mixture of something else. He was a pure Jew in the sense of having that. Does that make him better because of that? No. I'm not Jewish, so I'm not trying to exalt the Jews, but he was totally Jewish. He was not black. He wasn't Asiatic. He was a Jew. God used that race. He was a descendant, and it's both chronologies of Christ of the Bible shows he came right down from David, and he was a Jew. But they try to come up with some odd ideas that are completely unbiblical to anyone who really understands the Bible, completely, totally wrong, with no basis whatsoever when you really understand it, and argue and argue and argue and try to get weak people mixed up with these ideas. Every five or six years, these same ideas come up again as though there's some great new revelation because some little guy wants to be important. So he tries to get this idea to get himself a following. And then when the following occurs, back at the time when uh, Thomas Ham had something similar and he got two or three of our students upset and left, did they have some great work? No. Most of you never heard their names. They're all gone. No, Nothing came of it. Then later Herb Schrader and Jerry Tyler came along and had some idea, and then they disappeared. Nobody ever heard of them. And then two or three others, then two or three others, and they go down the line. These people that came up with ideas, what happened to them? They disappeared. 
They went off the radar screen. They did no work. They were not trusting Christ to work through His church that was teaching the full truth and doing the work. That's the thing, brethren, when these people come along, I've got this new idea, and Mr. Meredith's all wrong, and Mr. Ames is all wrong, and all this. Oh, really? Well, we make mistakes. We're very human. We don't claim to be perfect, but, brethren, we are the descendants of the church of God, and God guided a man named Herbert W. Armstrong more than any man in hundreds of years to revive the truth, to get the full message out, and we were his students, and I'm the only living one of the earliest evangelists on the, on the, in the work still carrying on and preaching the same thing. And you can talk to, frankly, it sounds kind of funny, but I think my secretary, I should be called her, my administrative assistant, Monica, <laughs> but she knows because she's talked to her. My first secretary was named Elva Russell, later Mrs. Richard Sediatic. She'll tell you she was in my freshman Bible class back in 1950, 51, and 51, 52. And I teach her the same thing now that I taught back then. And the man in United, but still very dedicated, my brother-in-law and dear friend, Burke McNair, still living. He will tell you the same thing. I taught him in freshman Bible class back in the 1950s. I've been teaching the same thing Mr. Armstrong did. He taught me, and I taught you. I magnify it. I learn a few little points here and there, but nothing big, no contradiction, just expanding on what Mr. Armstrong taught and learning from it is the foundation. And God gave us that foundation through the Bible and through Mr. Armstrong, and we're building on that solid foundation. We have had these things come up before, people coming along and whispering about the black Jesus or the black power or the black Israel or about counting, you know, Passover. Passover really is on the 15th rather than the 14th. They'll get a couple of scriptures out of context, and you can do that and make it sound very logical. Or you can do that, well, we're all supposed to speak the, speak the sacred names. No, we're not. But they have a way of arguing, and they sound very important. And new people can get easily upset by the trickery of men. So we're to be the leaders that teach the people to grow to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro by the trickery of men. In the cunning craftiness, they're always after something. They want power by which they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things to him who is Christ, who is the head, Christ. So we're trying to get all of you to reflect Jesus Christ in your doctrine, in your way of life, in your response to God's work. But always, brethren, when these people come along with these strange ideas, where is Christ working? Think about it. Who taught you the truth in the first place? Did you learn it from these men? No. No. Most of you in this room and most of you out there that will be hearing this later on tape, you learned the truth through Herbert Armstrong or those who were taught by him. Some of you learned it directly from me, and I was taught by him. And Mr. Ames was taught by him to a certain extent, although Mr. Ames, I was his teacher as well in freshman Bible class and epistles of Paul and so forth, as he said. But some of us were taught directly by Mr. Armstrong, and it comes right down that way. It wasn't by these men that come up with these weird ideas. You didn't learn it from them. Think about who is doing, teaching the full truth, not perfectly, Number one, who is teaching the full truth? Number two, who is doing the work? When people come along with these funny, are they doing the work? Are they on some major networks all over the world preaching the good news of the coming government of God? No. 
and who is teaching and practicing the right form of the government of God. Well, obviously they're not, or they would not be doing what they're doing, causing division. <laughs> Think about those three things. Those are the big three whenever anything comes up. Who is preaching the full truth, number one. Number two, who is really doing the work, not talking about it, but doing. Three, who is teaching and practicing the right form, the biblical form of church government. That sets us apart from every single church on earth today and even the other so-called splitters of the worldwide church of God because most of them are not preaching the full truth and they're certainly not practicing the correct form of God's government. So anyway, you have to figure that out. But check it out. Don't just listen to people who come along with these ideas. That's unbiblical and God is against that. God hates those who cause division. So we've got to have that attitude of being against this kind of division-causing thing. God will test us on this. He will test you. Are you willing to be deceived by the trickery of men who will come along and try to get followers just for the sake of getting followers? He's testing you. Are you going to be faithful and to be a king and a priest forever? Can he know you're that way? And he's testing you now. Will you be that way now? So that's the key thing we have to look into, these three big things. Who is preaching the truth, who's doing the work, and who's practicing and t teaching the full, full government of God. Don't be deceived by the trickery of men coming along with these ideas. And remember, brethren, that dedicated men 20, 30, 40, 60 years ago, when I was first in the work full-time after my graduation, men like Herbert W. Armstrong, Herman Hay, and myself and others were having meetings talking about these various things and earlier councils of elders, and the men on them were mainly faithful in those days. Certainly Mr. Armstrong was, and if I say so, I was. I wasn't perfect, but I was faithful. We had multitude council. We talked together and we decided and learned very clearly that sacred names are not sacred to God. We don't all have to speak Hebrew. We learned that these other things they come up with are not biblical. They're not true. And God guided us to make those decisions. And He's using us to do the work, not these other men. So try to figure that out. And that's important as these things happen that you get your right approach to church government. So what happened to the dissenters that came along? Well, as I said, they all sort of disappeared. They disintegrated. Many of them, I know we had split off from us back in 1998. And we were literally kicked out of our office by men that tried to take over. What happened to those men? I don't want to name the splits and name the men. Some of you know what I'm talking about. But people have documented there were at least seven or eight different splits. They split, they re-split, they re-split, and now some of them are clear out nowhere. Then others have gone off into all kinds of little groups. They weren't together themselves. They didn't have God's spirit of unity, and they're certainly not doing the work. Any of them are not being used by God to do the work. The dissenters up being nowhere, nowheresville. Mr. Armstrong ruled, brethren, Years ago, by the way, we are to make church rulings or the traditions of the church, as Paul said, follow. One of the traditions of the church is we're not to smoke. There's no scripture in the Bible. You can't turn to 1 John 5, 3 and say, well, it says, thou shalt not smoke. There isn't, it isn't there. 
but the principle is based on glorifying God in your body and smoking tears down your body. So that's based on that. Mr. Armstrong made a church decision after talking to many of us in multitude of council that in the church of God, people were not to have regular Bible studies. You know, just having a Bible study, let's say, every Friday night and make decisions and talk about doctrines without a minister present. They ought to have a faithful minister present. That's what Mr. Armstrong said. Are we trying to have mind control? No. You could talk to and just visit with one another. But if you begin to have someone invite you to a regular Bible study and some little guy that no one ever heard of suddenly comes up with some strange ideas and starts propounding this and people begin to follow him, say so they've got itching ears. They have itching ears. They want to learn anything new. And they follow him. You see that happening. Get away from there. Get away from there. And if you're really loyal, you'd go right to Mr. League or Mr. Rob McNair and tell them so they could try to straighten it out. But we're not to have regular secret Bible studies without a minister present. You can always visit and talk with one another, but not a regular service like it's a regular service of God's church. That's what always has turned out bad. I'm not afraid of it in the personal sense. I've just seen it turn out bad, and so did Mr. Armstrong. So we're doing it to protect you. That's not to be done unless a faithful minister is there. Call Mr. Lee, call Mr. McNair, call Dr. Winnale or Dr. Scott Winnale or some other minister and ask him to be there. Can't you have the confidence that God will guide this man, one of these men who's faithful, I'm named, many of our faithful ministers, and they can get your Bible study. I'd like to be there, but don't call me. I may be too tired. <laughs> I don't want, I'm kidding here partly, but I can't come to everyone's private Bible study at my age. You can figure that out. So we're not running to have me decide everything. We're just trying to get you to get the right advice and not get off with these crazy ideas that have always turned out wrong. Turn to Proverbs 11, if you would. Proverbs chapter 11 now at this point. And... Uh, Verse 14, you know this one, <clears throat> I hope. Proverbs 11, verse 14. God tells us where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. So get a multitude of counsel. Get at least three or four people if you have a major decision. I'm not talking about every little thing. If you have just some technical point you're talking about in the Bible, just talk to... Mr. League or Mr. Rob McNair, one of the associate pastors, or one of the others I've named, or any other faithful minister here. I'm not trying to name I'm just leaving out Dr. Nail and Mr. Wakefield and Mr. Ames. We can't all do all those personal counselings for you, but find a faithful minister and ask him to solve some technical point. But if it's a big thing, a big big problem, then get multitude of counsel. And you individually, young people, you're going to get married. What used to happen in Ambassador is the students would sometimes we called it minister shop. They would look around for a minister who was weak in the area that they wanted him to rule in favor of them. They'd find out a minister who would go along with this or what we called it minister shopping. And so they tried to get one. That's not multitude of counsel. You're just getting one who already agrees with you. Try to be honest. Get several people's opinion. People that are neutral in the sense they'll give a righteous judgment based on the laws of God. So get multitude of counsel. Then chapter 11, if you would, Proverbs uh, 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 12 now I mean. 
Proverbs 12, and let's begin in verse 26. The righteous should choose his friends carefully. Boy, that's important. Some of our people here and in the Ambassador College in the past, they fall right in. They come in with some kind of a smart-like attitude. They want to keep smoking out in the alley somewhere or do something bad. So they find some other kid that does the same thing, you see. Is that the way you're going to grow? No. Choose your friends carefully. Try to find someone that reflects Christ. Try to find someone that's loyal. Try to find someone that's wise. Try to find someone as your friend who has the fear of God. Choose your friends carefully. For the way of the wicked leads them astray. And that's a very important thing. Be very careful who you regularly associate with. Choose your friends carefully or you can get led astray. God, if you're going to be a leader, if you're going to be a leader in God's kingdom, God does not want to see you wallowing around in doubt and confusion and disloyalty. You've got to show God you are loyal. You've got to show God you are wise. You've got to show God that you want an impartial decision. And you want to be able to make impartial decisions, not based on political or just personal considerations. Over in chapter 13, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20, one of my favorite verses in the book of Proverbs, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but a companion of fools will be destroyed. If you hang around with other fools, and some of you young men come in and you hang around with other young men here who drink too much or smoke or do something bad or cuss, it's foolish. Don't do that. Get away from those people. Try to be with people that are clean and right and pure. And then it will help you to be clean and right and pure. So he tells you very carefully, he who walks with wise men will be wise. <clears throat> now, I don't have a whole group of wise men calling themselves wise men. But as our all leaders could tell you, I do have a Wednesday executive lunch nearly every Tuesday or Wednesday, I should say. And I have Mr. Wakefield. I have Dr. Winnell. I have Mr. Ames just going around the table. And I have uh, Mr. Hernandez, Mr. Faselka, Mr. Rod McNair, my son Jim alternating with Jim and Mr. League alternating sometimes with Mr. Amon. Eight or nine of us alternate. The table only seats eight, but we have eight of us together, and I get counsel from them. And all of them come and tell me things and meet with me regularly. Mr. League, Mr. Rob McNair, and certainly about the work all the time, Mr. Ames and Mr. Siselka and Mr. Dr. Winnell and so on. I get multitude of counsel. They are wise men. They are dedicated men, men who fear God and have done that for years. And I appreciate that. They are my friends because we are on the same page. We have the same mind. We try to have, and most of the time have. We're not perfect. We try hard to have the mind of God, and that's so important. So we're trying to do things that way here in this church. Okay, let's go now to Ephesians chapter 4 again. And here you find... No, I want to go to Ephesians chapter 2 this time, brethren. Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2, talking to these carnal Ephesians, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, verse 2, in which you once walked according to the counsel or the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, an evil spirit that now works 
Satan never gets tired. He works 24 hours a day. He works in the sons of disobedience. He's poking at you, trying to mislead you, trying to discourage you, trying to divide you. His whole way is divide and conquer. Real leaders will try to be objective. They will have wisdom. They will never waver like that. I've seen how leaders in the worldwide church of God who wavered early on turned out. I can name names, but I should not. And sure enough, that same spirit came up later, and later they turned out stabbing Mr. Armstrong in the back, so to speak, and turning on him. If you get a history of that, God will not use you. He cannot use you as a leader in His kingdom. You've got to be loyal. You've got to be tried in the middle of things. You don't need to be loyal to me by disobeying God. If there's sincere doctrinal agreement, come to me or come to Mr. Ames or Dr. Winnell or Mr. League or McNair if it's more of a personal thing. Talk to them. Get advice. Don't be afraid to come. We won't be putting you out just because you have a question. But we don't, we don't want people going around upsetting others by blatting off their mouth about something they know nothing of quite often. They get partial facts and they try to criticize the church or they come up with some strange doctrine that's been gone over every five or ten years going way back to the 1950s. And some of our brethren today think it's a brand new discovery. It's that same old corruption that's been brought up again and again, proved to be wrong. But people fall for it. They want every new thing, anything that seems interesting and titillating to them. Don't do that. Have the fear of God and don't let Satan upset you. Turning over to chapter uh, 6 now of Ephesians, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The devil is very tricky. He has wiles. He has all kinds of tricks up his sleeve. His set of strategy is often divide and conquer, divide and conquer. He can slow down this work by dividing and dividing and dividing and cause people to be upset over little stuff, often stupid stuff that people get into because they don't understand. So don't let that happen to you. If you want to be a leader in the church, you want to be a leader in the work, and if you want to be a leader in God's kingdom, don't let Satan's wiles get at you. Resist it with all your heart and mind. Resist it. Back in Hebrews, brethren, turn with me to Hebrews now, near the end of your New Testament here, just before James. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. God tells us, Remember those who rule over you who have spoken the word of God to you. Who are the main ones who have spoken the word of God to you? Think about it. Over the years, it might have been Mr. Armstrong, directly or indirectly. And directly in the last 21 years, since we've had this work for 21 and a half years, it's been primarily me, or later as he came along, Mr. Ames or Dr. Nail or others, were the main ones who have given the main sermons and written the main booklets. We have spoken the truth to you. Have we been out lying, cheating, getting drunk, committing adultery? No, we have not. You know that. We're a small enough church. If that had been happening, you'd find it out. We have not. We're not perfect, but we've tried to walk with God, and these men have been good examples, very good examples. So remember them whose faith follow. Follow that approach to God, considering the outcome of their conduct. Don't follow those who have the wrong conduct. Remember, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
did they follow his example. And then in verse 17, verse 17, obey those. God commands us, obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch for your souls. He's obviously talking about ministers. And, and as those who must give account, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So he says, obey those, follow our instruction, and follow us as we follow Christ, but don't try to judge us all along the way or you have an opinion on everything. Know that Christ is in charge overall. You don't have to try to reinvent the wheel every day. That's not having the right attitude toward Christ's leadership. Christ is alive. He's in charge. Back in Daniel chapter 12 now, if you turn there with me here to Daniel, back here in your Old Testament, as famous scripture here, Daniel 12, verse 1. He's been talking about the time of the end in chapter 11, verse 40. And he says in Daniel 12, at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, of course, the coming great tribulation, such as never was, since there was a nation even to that time. At that time, your people will be delivered. We will be delivered, brethren, if we do our part, if we show God that we're loyal. He's developing a team. He wants leaders. He wants rulers on his team who are faithful, who are loyal, who will do things God's way. So they will be delivered. Everyone found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. When is this? The time of the resurrection, the time of Christ's return. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And I know you don't want that. Those who are wise, are we wise? Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness. That's what we're trying to do. How many of these dissenters have turned people to righteousness? Practically nobody. They come into an existing church. They try to upset people. They kind of pick and pick at the leadership and get a few people away. They don't go to the outside world and turn many to righteousness. They just don't do that. But those of us who are part of this work and do our best through our prayers, our tithes, our offerings, our personal example, our urgent concern for others, help turn many to righteousness, they shall shine like the stars forever and ever. So let's be that kind of leaders in God's church. Let's show that understanding, that balance, that wisdom, the fear of God, and that courage. Let's strive to be that kind of leaders and be in God's kingdom, God's government forever as the righteous leaders over this world and the late, later the whole universe, the leaders that God is preparing right now.